Halls of Fame celebrate the most elite and legendary leaders in their field, but there's no one to honor the Halls of Fame themselves for their contributions. Until now. Join me as I tour the country, inducting these revered institutions into my own personal Hall of Fame of Halls of Fame. Along the way, I'll interview the curators and historians who fill these destinations with priceless artifacts and inspiring stories. I'm Bradley Barth, and this is Hall Pass. Today's Hall Pass grants us access to the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame in Saratoga Springs, New York. Sitting just down the road from the historic Saratoga Racecourse, this shrine to horse racing inducted its inaugural class in 1955. As of summer 2023, the museum has honored 478 inductees, including world-famous thoroughbreds and the jockeys, trainers, and owners who helped turn them into champions. Today, I'm champing at the bit to talk to my two guests, Director of Communications Brian Bouye and Collections Manager Stephanie Luce. We'll talk about the art and artifacts inside the museum, why the Hall of Fame ended up in New York and not Kentucky, and who's behind all those colorful lawn jockeys guarding the museum. Plus, I'll ride a horse racing simulator used by actual professional jockeys and get graded on my technique. And we're off and running. All right, Stephanie, Brian, thanks so much for having me here up in Saratoga Springs. Uh, your Hall of Fame is unique because it honors two species, humans and equine. Uh, you have the horses themselves, and then you have the jockeys, the trainers, the owners, other key contributors. So do you have a favorite horse or person? Which one is most meaningful to you and why? You know, it's certainly difficult. I, I have certain ones from different eras that I like. Um, obviously, in the modern era, you know, when when we do the inductions, we get to know a lot of the people that were involved with the jockeys and the trainers that that were inducting, and uh, they, they've all been, you know, really special in their own sort of ways. Um, you know, guys like Ramon Dominguez and Javier Castellano and John Velasquez in recent years, and uh, you know, Todd Pletcher and Mark Cassie. They're all just wonderful human beings, as well as you know, standouts in the sport. So um, I've never personally dealt with anybody here at the museum uh, from an inductee perspective that I didn't like. So um, I think that's great. I mean, horses, we all have our favorites that we've liked over the years. I mean, historically, um, you know, Man of War, Seabiscuit, War Admirals, those are some of my favorites. I like a lot of the really early stuff, um, you know, going way back in history to the Civil War and pre-Civil War eras. So I've always been fascinated by the history of Lexington and Boston and Kentucky, horses like that. Um, you know, more modern era, you know, Rachel Alexandra and American Pharaoh, you know, come to mind right off the top. So um, there's just so many that I like. So I'm not going to give you just one, obviously, <laughs> but that's that's a few off the top that, uh, you know, I've been really, you know, into over the last several years. Yeah, no, a nice sampling is perfectly reasonable. So let's start at the beginning of what would be a typical visit uh, to this museum. Each Hall of Fame has its own unique way of welcoming guests inside and creating this first impression. Two things in particular struck me. Uh, one is outside the building, the other is inside. So first up, you have this very colorful procession of lawn jockeys all lined up and down Union Avenue. Can you just tell me the origins of that? Like, Who's responsible for that art? What does each lawn jockey represent? Tell me a little bit about that. 
Um, so actually, you picked the right person because it, it was my idea to, to have this. Um, in New York City, they had a place called the 21 Club, which was a famous oh, restaurant sure. that had a lot of these jockey statues out there. And we had kind of thought about you know, a way to kind of make us more visually appealing to look at the, the neighborhood and what would fit in with racing history. And I just thought you know, an idea of this, this row of statues and somehow to also turn it into something that would benefit the museum. So we placed kind of a call out to uh, museum trustees, people in the industry and we made it a fundraiser. So these are the silks of the stable colors of a lot of the prominent owners in the sport. And uh, it was a fundraiser for the museum. So to get their colors on there, they made a donation to the museum and they get them on there for a period of five years. Um, after that, if they want to renew, they can re-up for another five years or they get to keep the jockey. Um, and it's become extremely popular. We actually have a waiting list of people that want to get out there in that prime location uh, on Union Avenue and some of the other spots that we have. So um, it's been a big thing here. You know, people coming and taking their photos with it, photo shoots, selfies. Um, so it's really been something that's helped identify us uh, in the neighborhood. Yeah. What, what's fun too is that I saw in the gift shop that if you want your own personal lawn jockey, you can actually buy one. I think it's like $750 or something, but you can get one customized or personalized for yourself. Yeah. Right through us. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, if you go through town, Saratoga, you'll see these are kind of popular to honor. Uh, you know, if, if you own part of a racing partnership or you own horses or you have a favorite uh, horse or stable of the past, you know, you'll see these. They're extremely popular here in Saratoga. Mm -hmm. Then I was told that the first thing I might want to do uh, before really fully exploring the museum uh, is to watch the welcome film, which really sets the tone for the full experience and paints a picture of just the beauty of the sport. Interestingly, the room also doubles as the main hall for the honorees as well. Can you talk a little bit about how the film sets the stage for the entire experience and how often do you update it with new clips or narration? So we um, we had a major museum renovation in 2020. We, we reopened the Hall of Fame with the signature film called What It Takes during to the Hall of Fame um, on Labor Day weekend of 2020. Um, basically, before that, we were kind of running out of space in the room. Before that, we had traditional plaques that were in the room that served, uh, you know, as as the um, you know, basically telling the history of our achievers here. So it kind of reminded a lot of people of Cooperstown. If you've been out there, the Baseball Hall of Fame, we had all the plaques on the walls and it was wonderful. Um, but we were running out of space and we had kind of another issue that's kind of unique to us. Um, in racing, we're able to honor Hall of Fame members while they're still active. Um, a trainer is eligible for the Hall of Fame after 25 years, a jockey 20 years. And basically, uh, you get into the Hall of Fame and a lot of these guys, their careers went on, their achievements went on. A perfect example example would be Mike Smith. He got inducted to the Hall of Fame in 2003, but his plaque didn't have any of the achievements that he had after that. So he won a triple crown after that. He had a great horse named Zenyatta that he rode to 19 victories. So um, the new Hall of Fame, we wanted to have something that would be interactive and something that would keep that footprint. We wouldn't have to worry about expanding space. So it came a digital experience and perfect example for Mike Smith, you know, we're able to update these plaques in real time with real statistics. Um, so you know, a guy goes out to the Breeders' Cup or the Kentucky Derby, wins that race on a weekend. The Monday after, we've got those stats updated right in there. So it's uh, yeah. it's been something that's been been great for us. Yeah, interesting because you actually answered what was going to be my next question, which is, uh, where are the plaques? Because I was 
curious, uh, you know, other Hall of Fames that you go in, and this is just an observation, it's not a critique, right? Everybody does it differently. You go to the Football Hall of Fame, yep. they have busts, you know, for example. Right. And so here, it's all digitalized, it's uh, very much virtual, but apparently you did, at one point, have plaques uh, so in we, place. So where, where are, so do we they still, yeah. We still give out the plaques to the inductees. When they're inducted each year, they get the plaque that we had uh, previously. We have them now in storage. We're working um, on some arrangements with some racetracks that might be able to get some of these regionally. Some of them might travel. So um, we're kind of working within the racing industry that some of these past plaques will have the opportunity to be displayed again. Um, but you know, just with our transition here, you know, we, they're they're not getting sold. They're 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 in storage. They're well secured. You know, they're not going to show up on eBay or anything mm -hmm. like that. So, um, th but they are going to probably uh, be represented at some tracks and some maybe some racing associations in the future down the road. I will say that for anyone who does come here to the museum, that the film is not to be missed. Some people might just be like, oh, it's a film. I can skip it. I just want to look around. You really should see it. It sets the tone so well. It's narrated by Bob Costas. Uh, whoever scored it with the music. The music is just perfect. So we worked with Donna Lawrence Productions uh, based out of Louisville and she had done uh, a project for the Kentucky Derby Museum. She's done a lot of other uh, museums and, and sports halls of fame. She did the College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, she's done uh, specific teams and organizations, the New York Historical Society, uh, places like that. So we were really impressed with her work and we started conceptualizing what this film could be and what you could get into a 16, 17 minute film. So we wanted it to be about the Hall of fame and the work that it takes uh, for a horse, for a jockey, for a trainer to get there, but also to show the beauty of the sport, the different racetracks, the farms, the backstretch, you know, all the grooms and the hot walkers and the people working that make up this ecosystem of racing to really give a picture of, you know, what this sport is like at its best. So um, we interviewed several Hall of Fame members. Uh, we interviewed a lot that didn't get into the film initially. We've, we've made a couple of uh, tweak since then to get a couple different people in there. So we're hoping every two or three years to change out some of the interviews, to change out some of the clips to kind of keep it fresh that, you know, hey, if you saw it a couple years ago, you're going to want to check it out again. Something else that struck me more than most of the other halls that I've been to, this one has quite a lot of art on display, sculptures, paintings, sketches. Uh, you have a whole section dedicated to the, uh, the sketches of Saul Steinberg. Uh, certainly the very natural, elegant form of the horse has long been an inspiration for artists. Talk about just some of your favorite art pieces here on site and why the emphasis on art. I'll let Stephanie uh, <laughs> go first here. Yes, I mean, I think this helps, um, you know, a lot of Hall of Fames are just Hall of Fames, but we are a museum and a Hall of Fame, and we do have over 26,000 items in our collection. Um, so we kind of get to show people both art and um, the achievements of the Hall of Fame members. And kind of similar to Brian being the Hall of Fame director, picking one Hall of Famer he likes, kind of being in charge of the collection and picking one item that I like the best is a little difficult. Um, we have so many different, we are starting to get more modern stuff. We have older items, um, but we do have a new sculpture outside recently that came in against all odds. It was outside of Arlington Park before Arlington Park closed. Um, it's now in the front of our building and it, it's an amazing sculpture. Um, so right now, you know, it's a new sculpture. We just got it cleaned and restored. 
Um, and it's a fan favorite. A lot of people are walking by and stop in front of the museum to take photos of the new sculpture. So right now it's a little bit on my top of my list of one of my favorite items right now. The statue represents the inaugural Arlington Million race. Okay. Um, so it's John Henry, who's a Hall of Fame horse versus the Bart. And it's a, a sculpture. It's called Against All Odds because um, John Henry looked desperately beaten in this race. And it was the Ar it was the original Arlington Million, which was the first $1 million thoroughbred race in America. So the race itself was a big deal and it had ties to the Hall of Fame as well because John Henry's a Hall of Famer. He won the race again three years later. Um, his jockeys who rode him, Eddie Delahousse and Chris McCarron are Hall of Fame members. He's trained by Ron McAnally as a Hall of Fame member. And the track was owned at the time by uh, Mr. Richard Duchessois, who's a pillar of the turf. So um, Churchill Downs owns uh, Arlington Park and they closed it and they, they were looking for a space for this statue, which is just an iconic piece of, of racing history. So we were uh, more than happy to take it on and it, it fits in perfectly with our building, uh, with our mission. You know, we've got kind of these bookend statues now in the property. You've got this on the one side, on the other side, you've got the Seabiscuit statue. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it fits really well. And John Henry's, you know, one of the, the best horses in the sport in the last 50 years. So, yeah. I like to play a few games with uh, the people that I interview for this show. And so this is going to be the first one. Okay. Uh, this is sort Fire of, a, yeah, I call this one superlative. So it's just the idea of, I'm going to throw out uh, different adjectives, descriptor words, and then you give me the item that you feel best uh, encapsulates or represents that particular uh, descriptor. And we'll go through the, some of the different items that you have on display here. So I'm going to start with what do you feel is the most photogenic item. And really what I mean by that is just like, what's the item that everybody wants to have their picture taken with uh, when they come to the museum? Um, besides Against All Odds, which I think has been a bigger draw for photos now um, that it's right in the front of the building, I think the next one is probably the Secretariat that's in our inside court um, courtyard that we have. Secretariat obviously is a huge fan favorite. Most people, even if you're not a huge racing fan, you know who Secretariat is. There's a Disney movie and everything. Um, so we have a great sculpture in our courtyard, um, and it seems to be a lot of photos have taken it of Secretariat. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed walking around that courtyard in the summer when I first visited, and I know you have a couple of lawn jockeys that are out there too, uh, very floral and, and pretty out there. So yeah, that was like a, a nice little quiet meditative spot. You were going to say something? Yeah, too? to that I would add, um, you know, when we did the renovations of the Hall of Fame, our, our race day gallery, we did add specifically a spot where people can do uh, photos with, with a horse sculpture down there. It's, it's, it's uh, got a, a rider simulating a winner's circle uh, scene down there. So you can get your picture taken in a winner's circle. Um, to that I would add definitely the jockey statues because people resonate with the particular silks that are on there. You know, uh, Mary Lou Whitney's name is very big in Saratoga. A lot of people get their picture taken with those specific silks or Claiborne Farm, or a lot of people have partnerships that they're involved in, whether it's West Point Thoroughbreds or Windstar or some of these other uh, you know farms that offer partnerships. They can come and they can get their pictures taken with those specific statues. So uh, those are big, but I, I think it's just de depends on the people, and you know mm -hmm. those are those are some of the bigger ones. Definitely. Do you not also get a lot of people who try to take pictures of themselves bursting out of the starting gate? 
Oh, sure. And that's, that's something that, uh, you know, if we have photo shoots here with like, you know, we've had some like wedding parties and some, uh, fashion show events and those sort of things. Uh, you know, we have people that'll, you know, you can climb up in the starting gate, mm -hmm. you know, for the, for the specific shoots. We don't like the, uh, let the guests come in and do that typically, but for some of the shoots, we've allowed people to kind of act like a gate crew or mm -hmm. to get up in there. So there's definitely some, uh, unique opportunities for photo shoots, that sort of thing here. Yeah. For people who watch on YouTube, you'll see it in the B roll most likely, but we, there is a spot where they have basically a, a starting gate with a horse that's about to jump out of the gate and, uh, you know, just seems like a prime photo opportunity. All right. What about rarest? Do you have something that particularly jumps to mind for rare, whether it's there's only one of those in the world or it was just really hard to come by? I would say, I mean, obviously we have some items that are very old, um, but I think the Triple Crown trophies, obviously there hasn't been many Triple Crown winners. It's very hard to win that. Um, and we do have three in our collection, um, which I think is great that we have those Triple Crown trophies. We do have one on loan right now from when Secretariat won the Triple Crown also. But I think because that's so rare to win the Triple Crown, having those Triple Crown trophies on display at the museum are great for people to see. Yeah, and to that I would add, you know, um, a lot of the artwork obviously is unique. I mean, if you go into our pre-Civil War gallery, there, there's portraits there, um, you know, by Edward Troy and some of the great artists of that era of Boston, Lexington, Glencoe, you know, and these are these are the originals. I mean, you're not getting these anywhere else. Um, you know, if you go through the Civil War gallery there, we have some of the uh, most influential people of that era. We've got portraits of Leonard Jerome, who's a Hall of Fame member, of August Belmont II, of William Travers, who the Traverse Stakes is named after. And you're not going to see these anywhere else. I mean, these are here at the yeah. National Museum of Racing, and, um, you know, our, our artwork collection is as good as any in the world. And obviously, unique items, you know, some of the horseshoes that we have from, you you know, Hall of Famers like Man of War. Uh, the the first uh, the first donation to the museum was was a plate from uh, Lexington, is yes. it? it? Which is right in the pre Civil War gallery. And uh, you know, these are things that you're not going to find anywhere else. So um, a lot of spectacular stuff if you're a history buff or into mm -hmm. early racing. I was going to mention that one specifically that caught my eye. It was dated back to 1855. I made a note of it, yeah. the, the Lexington uh, horseshoe. Yeah. So that uh, certainly would be among some of the oldest genuine items you have, too. So rare and old. Uh, so, yeah, that one caught my eye. And I sure. believe that one specifically, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that was the first gift to the museum. Yes, that, that item was the first gift. So it's a very interesting item to be our first gift to the museum, too. I interesting. Think. Interesting. <laughs> What about strangest item? I always love asking like the weirdest or the strangest one. So the thing that comes to mind for me, I mean, obviously um, there's a lot of things that come can come from, you know, horse racing to the littlest thing that a jockey could use and, you know, just what he does before the race. But um, we actually have candlesticks made from horse shoes, like horse um, hooves. Um, it's actually a Hall of Fame member, Good and Plenty. They're from 1907. I mean, it's definitely strangest to us. I think it's kind of more of a thing that might have been done back then, you know, um, that they used that to kind of, you know, they had these great horses as a Hall of Fame horse and to make something from it. And we have these candlesticks. I feel like those might be the strangest thing in our collection. Okay. You scared me for a minute because you were like, we have these candlesticks made out of horse. And I'm like, horse what? Horse what? I got like scared there. Um, yeah, but, but because of the time frame, it seems to be something that might have, you know, been yeah. done more commonly in that time frame. And they are a Hall of Fame horse. So yeah, it's yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm not going to top that. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there's certainly a lot of oddball things that I've seen here, a lot of pop culture items that are kind of unique from the eras that they were in and stuff. Um, I think there was, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember if I've seen this recently, but I believe there was some sort of bottle of liquor from like William Travers back in the day that's in our vault that I've like just really bizarre sort of thing. So. Yeah, we have some bottles of liquor, you know, some still filled with some liquor and some other um, liquid items that, you know, it's strange that they had, you know, a half bottle of whether it was liquor or some sort of um, liquid that was used with the horse. Um mm-hmm. And donated it with, you know, half full. And we still kind of have some of that in our vault, too. So and we don't drink any of it. No, just, just we to don't. Put, just to put that out there because we don't know what's in there. But. See, it's always interesting to hear what people are going to say. Like the thing that jumped to my mind, I was wondering if maybe one of you were going to say it was uh, just some of the old jockey scales that they could stand on or sit on. Jockey scales are very interesting in the fact that they're so different. I mean, the one that is in post-Civil War really just looks like a regular chair. Um, so the fact that they use that as the jockey scale is kind of kind of strange, too. <laughs> you mentioned the Lexington Horseshoe. What are some of your other oldest genuine artifacts? Also, I noticed that some of your trophies are over a century old. Some of them have even been repurposed over the years. Talk about your expansive trophy collection a bit. Well, our our oldest item on display and our oldest item in the collection is actually the John Wooten painting that's in Colonial Gallery. So we do have that very small Colonial Gallery before you go into pre-Civil War. So that is our oldest item in our collection. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the trophies are very interesting and, you know, they definitely repurpose trophies at certain points. And there's also, you know, the perpetual trophies that, you know, would be handed out to winners in the winner circle and then they would kind of get smaller versions of those trophies to take home. So there's those that kind of go through the years and have either, you know, stopped and used and we have some in our collection or, you know, they are still used at racetracks um, for certain races too. So it's interesting to see how trophies have been used and changed throughout the yeah. years. For and sure. that's, that's still kind of the tradition nowadays. Like a perfect example, the most valuable trophy in sports is the Woodlawn Vase, which they give out at the Preakness Stakes. And the trophy comes out one day a year. It's kept in the Baltimore Museum of Fine Art, and it's there. They, it has its armed escort to come over to the track. They bring it out for the presentation, and then they bring it back. And the, the winners of the race get replica trophy, trophies of it. So that's kind of been a, uh, a racing tradition. You know, Some of these plates and trophies go back you know to the early early 1800s in a lot of sense um as far as like other older items i would kind of want to mention as well um we have a collection of british sporting art called the terriot collection which is off of our mcbean gallery that has a lot of the british racing scenes from the 19th century that's uh you know just really unique looking artwork that a lot of people um are intrigued by and a lot of that was the foundation of what american racing was built upon so that that's kind of a cooler um you know kind of an an older item items from our collection as well In the lead up to the Civil War, as the nation became more divided, a horse racing rivalry developed between the North and South, and you have quite a bit of memorabilia pertaining to North versus South races that in some cases drew tens of thousands of spectators. At least in in one case, I remember uh, it was on Long Island, which is my home base. Uh, Just talk a little bit about some of the collection that you have that focuses on on that particular interesting aspect of the North versus South rivalry. Yeah, so in the pre-Civil War, we do have that scarf that kind of depicts certain scenes from the race. Um, 
and it's interesting having such a pizza like that because when you go and try to find items, you know, with the older items, it is harder to find items and make sure they're still, you know, safe and available and still, you know, there. Um, so we are lucky to have that scarf and kind of have depict that race because it was such a big thing to have this north versus south going on during that time. And for a race course. Um, you know, we try to depict race courses of the past too, not just current race courses, um, race tracks that are still active, but, you know, also depicting a racetrack like that, you know, really shows the whole history of racing. And specifically that was the, uh, it was the union course on Long Island. And there were a lot of match races that went through the years, but this foundational one that, uh, the scarf was from was 1823 and it was American Eclipse. Um, and he was the Northern champion and, uh, horse from the south was sir henry and this you know the, the rivalry for this and the build-up to it went on for months and months um the, the story was that american eclipse he was an unbeaten horse he had been retired he'd been brought back and you know his his owners uh you know he can't be beat he's un, unbeatable but the south was the you know the epicenter of racing for most of the time virginia uh you know even before kentucky became kind of that um that that central uh, part of the sport um they said that you know no no northern horse could beat the best southern horses, and they had the opportunity to pick which horse they wanted to represent them. Um, and American Eclipse was an older horse, and they had about sixty thousand people that came. If you can imagine this in eighteen twenty three, right? And yeah, this right. dominated all of the newspaper coverage, the sporting trades. Um, and American Eclipse won the race, the northern horse. Uh, it was a multi heat race, and it was really kind of the start of these north versus south match races that uh, you know went on for, for the next you know thirty forty years that were very popular. Yeah, a little bit more on the north south element. I mean, even today, a lot of people when they think about horse racing, they do think about. Uh, some of the southern representation of horse racing, particularly Kentucky, Churchill Downs. Um, you know, down there they have a Kentucky Derby Museum and a Kentucky Horse Park and the International Museum of the Horse. Uh, yet Saratoga is also very tied to horse racing history and New York in general. There were quite a few uh, tracks that sprung up all in the, the New York metropolitan area. Uh, and this is where the National Racing Museum ended up. So why did New York prevail in that sense of getting to be the home base of the Hall of Fame? I would say because of Saratoga. Um, you know, Saratoga is the oldest active sporting venue in the country right now. Um, the track was opened in 1864, right right during the Civil War. Um, you know, Kentucky became the epicenter of the breeding industry. And, um, you know, all of the big farms down there that produce, you know, I don't know what percentage is, but it's a the vast majority of the top thoroughbreds come from Kentucky, whether it's Claiborne Farm or Windstar or Gainesway, Lanes End, all these amazing horses come out of Kentucky. It's where the sales are. It's kind of where everything kind of originates from. Um, but Saratoga, you know, it just had that history. And it was the place where the leaders of the sport came in the summer. And at one point it was, you know, the whole decision was, you know, this is such a popular place. It's, you know, steeped in Revolutionary War history. Um, the origins here were so amazing. And it's, you know, where the New York elite came during the summer. And uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney, who was among the museum's founders and its first president, along with some of the other, you know, key people at the time. And there were Kentucky people involved in this group. There were California people involved. Um, they made the decision that just based on Saratoga's history, this would be a great place for a National Museum of Racing. It's where the, the tension of the sport is during the summertime. Um, and, it, and it grew from there. Jockeys comprise such an important, significant category of those who are represented in this Hall of Fame. And what's fascinating 
about when you look at the chronology of the sport by going through the museum, who the actual jockey was changed over the decades. It might have started with the horse's owner was riding the horse, but eventually you had, as I was reading in the museum, you had children that would be selected mm -hmm. to ride horses because they were obviously very small and didn't weigh much. You had the slaves of plantation owners who would uh, ride the horses. And then down the line, uh, they started uh, obviously bringing in uh, jockeys who were very much specifically uh, trained for the sport. So to what extent have you been able to dig up information on the children and slaves who raced so that they're not lost to history? There, there are definitely some historical records that you know we've been able to get through. Um, certainly, there's a lot of gaps in that history. Um, racing, in a lot of sense, you know, they they didn't even report on who the trainer was or who the jockey was. It was about the horse and the owner because those were the ones that you know the names were there. They were mattered. Racing basically started as you know a lot of these far in America, you know. My my horse is faster than your horse, and let's have a race and let's determine it and figure it out. Um, the passenger, the jockey, was not really considered relevant to the story, and um, that went on for a long time. And, and until they started seeing the differences of the skills of some of the riders that you know can make a difference in a close race or determine something. Um, same, same with the trainer. A lot of times, you know, the owner would train the horse, or they would just kind of have a, a stable hand do it. Um, but they kind of realized that as you know the. The, the sport evolved that you need skilled horsemen to, to get the horses in the best condition to get them prepared for what they're going to face in the races. And same with the jockeys. Um, they need to know strategy. They need to know positioning in the races. They need to know how much energy their horse has left at the end, whether their horse is a speed horse at the beginning that needs pace or is come from behind. You know, there's so many different variables that go into it. Um, but as far as, you know, tracing the history of the jockeys, you know, there's been a lot of great books that have really kind of helped, you know, fill in some of these gaps. And uh, we've inducted um, five African-American jockeys into the Hall of Fame all before uh, the turn of the century to the two, to the uh, 1900s. You know, so we were able to get a lot of good records. Like I said, they are definitely incomplete. There's a lot of ones that you can look at some of the oil paintings and it'll just you know, the jockey will be unnamed or it'll just be kind of a figurehead with a horse. Um, so there's definitely gaps in the history and um, where the riders have come from has changed and evolved. Uh, there was a lot of racism that forced a lot of these African-American jockeys off the track or over to Europe. Um, you know, we had English riders that came over, Irish riders that came over. Um, as we progressed into the 20th century, around the 1950s, you had what they had called the Latin invasion, where, uh, you know, a lot of the jockeys came up from, uh, you know, the Latin America that had really basically dominated the sport, you know, and that's kind of what you see a lot of today. Um, you know, that the riding academies developed in those countries to give these guys the opportunities to, to learn the sport, to learn about horses. Um, and they came to America because that's where these great opportunities were. Um, and now you're seeing in America, there've been academies that have developed since then. So it's, it's changed so much. Um, where the riders come from has changed so much. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very unique history. Yeah. It's certainly great to see that you know, the efforts being made to go back and recapture that part of history, especially uh, some of these uh, early African-American jockeys 
a lot of their records are still, you know, resonating today. Isaac Murphy, who was in the inaugural class of the Hall of Fame, uh, by many people's opinion, is the greatest jockey of all time. He was the first jockey to win uh, three Kentucky Derbies. He won the American Derby several times, which at that time had a bigger purse than the Derby. Um, so we do have a lot of records on, on these people and what their accomplishments are. And um, there's been a, a very good historical push in the last, you know, 25 years or so to really kind of go back and chronicle these stories as much as they can. A lot of great books have come out on the subject of uh, you know who these people were the conditions that they had to uh, work under to make their make their lives so you do also have a really nice big display uh, on on two horses in particular man of war uh, you have right now and you also have sea biscuit who we were just talking about a little bit earlier certainly I think sea biscuit resonates with a lot of people because they also think of that movie uh, as well with Toby Maguire and uh, is such an inspiring story and you do have uh, artifacts representative of the the two jockeys who are associated with sea biscuit that would be uh, it's George Wolf and Red Pollard yep and Seabiscuit has some amazing ties, not only to um, you know just racing in general, but specifically the Hall of Fame. Um, and the movie itself has some ties to us as well. Uh, Gary Stevens, who who played George Wolf in the movie, is a Hall of Fame member. He calls the races over at Nairies an analyst for them. He comes to the museum often. Um, Chris McCarron, who served as War Admiral's jockey in the movie, he was the technical advisor on the film. He comes here. Part of the film was actually filmed right across the street at Saratoga. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of great tie-ins there for for us as well. So. Cool. Let's talk about what does go on here during induction week that is taking place really in the heart of racing season. It's a spectacle. It's a carnival. The whole town comes to life with food and music. So talk about what you do specifically here at the museum uh, during that week. Uh, it's it's a lot that goes into it. Um, you know, the, the Hall of Fame induction ceremony that we have, uh, it's usually the first Friday in August, right before the, the Whitney weekend, and then the, the horse sales come in. So like as you said, it, the whole town is bustling with activity, um, and then we induct the new Hall of Fame class, and, and it's uh, it's months of preparation that go into it from preparing, uh, you know, video elements and getting the plaques made and, you know, coordinating with the families and the inductees, and the, it just, a lot goes into it, but it, it's such a fun event. Um, it's the highest honor in the sport that we have. You know, you can win an Eclipse Award, which is, you know, a one-year honor, or you can win a big race like the Derby of the Preakness. But for the the people and the horses that are inducted here, it means that, you know, their record and what they've accomplished, you know, stands the test of time. It means that they're among the greatest who have ever done it. So it's, it's a very emotional thing, um, you know, and, and if, if we have living inductees, you know, to see them with their families here and what it means to them and, you know, the hard work and the sacrifice and everything that they've had to do to do that, it's just, uh, it's a remarkably emotional event you know that goes into it and it's really it's such a big time in this town you know mm-hmm. a lot of the hall of famers come back in you know we have people that come up every year from kentucky and california and florida and uh, some of the guys have come down from canada so uh, it's a reunion for a lot of these guys a lot of you know we get a probably about 20 uh, 20 hall of fame members that come into town for these ceremonies to kind of you know welcome their their new f- fellow hall of famers in and it's, it's just such an amazing thing we have a reception here for them later that evening um, and it just kicks off you know kind of a lot of big things going on in the town the whitney handy cap is that weekend which is one of our biggest races in saratoga um, we have our hall of fame stakes which is the same day as the inductions and then that leads into the sales where these multi-million dollar horses are getting purchased here you know we've we've had american pharaoh purchased here and flight lines some all these other hall of famers over the last few years and future hall of famers um, and it's just it's it's just an amazing time to be around the town's electric the museum's electric we have events every day um 
tours coming in, yeah. uh, you know, talks, Saturday morning social programs. Uh, so it's just, it's, we're running crazy, but you know, we all love it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Does the actual induction ceremony take place here at the museum? Does it take place at the horse track? Where does it? So it's uh, right across the street at the Phasic Tipton Sales Pavilion, which is okay. kind of the perfect size venue for that. Um, you know, the museum's too small. We don't really have a facility to, you know, we, it's open to the public. Anybody can come and you know, we do broadcast on our website as well. But um, the, the track isn't a venue for that because it's, it's an operational horse track. And then, you know, we have the ceremony in the morning before the racing gets going. But, you know, you've got all sorts of things going on at the track from morning training to, uh, you know, tours and things like that. So it's really a great venue for, for it. It's a, it's a spectacular venue where uh, so much history has been made through the sales there and everything. So it's, it's a great venue. It's walking distance right from the museum. Do the inducted horses actually come to the ceremony? No, no, we, we don't have the horses come to the ceremony. Um, you know, we, we've had, uh, you know, if the horse is still alive at, at, at the stallion farm or anything like that. So a lot of times they'll, they'll, you know, take pictures of them with their plaques and stuff, but the horses aren't making any acceptance speeches. <laughs> we're not parading, we're not parading them out there or anything like that. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's uh, a lot of the ones that have, uh, the, the colts that have gone on, uh, a lot of them are at, you know, the Kentucky farms that are, you know, represented where, you know, you can go visit them on tours and stuff like that. But it's, it's the owner making an acceptance speech or the trainer or, you know, the jockey that's sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether you're, whether you're here for the weekend, whether you're here for a week, it, it makes a great trip to come here, check out the museum and then go to the races and, and just enjoy that. I mean, that's what I did. I basically went to the track and, you know, I placed a few bets and didn't win anything. But it was it was just great to be here as part of the atmosphere. It really was. It's yeah, very special. It's, it's it's a remarkable town as well too. I mean, there's so many other historical things you can do here. Plus, we have you know a world class performing arts venue in town, and you're you're right near Lake George and the Adirondacks, and oh, yeah. you know you can make a whole summer out of it. You really can. There's so much to do in the area. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I even walked around and tried some of the different spring water wells oh, ar yeah. around town. So we talked about the races here at Saratoga. Uh, is there a particularly famous horse racing event? I, I really feel like saying Saratoga would be cheating. I'll, I'll allow you to say it if you want to. But uh, otherwise, if, if you're going to say Saratoga, at least give me a very specific race from Saratoga. Uh, is there one that you personally attended that you have fond memories of? And is there a horse race that if you had a time machine and you could go back and oh, see wow. with your own eyes, what would you want to see? Uh, I mean, personally, every year, the Travers is, is my highlight of the year. It's the it's Saratoga signature event. Um, but I've been fortunate to, to go to a lot of big races over the years. Probably the most significant historical one that I got to see was uh, American Pharaoh winning the Triple Crown at, at Belmont in, yeah. in 2015. It was just absolutely remarkable after uh, it had been 37 years since we had a Triple Crown winner. So yeah. the, the the excitement of 90,000 people, the building shaking as that horse is pulling away to win it was mm -hmm. just a, a remarkable experience. Um, I could go on for about five hours of this, so <laughs> I, I won't. Um, but historically, if there was something I could have seen, um, I'd probably have to say Secretariat's Belmont, you know, winning mm -hmm. by 31 lengths. Um, and it had been 25 years since there'd been a triple crown before him so uh, it was a remarkable historical event but then I would have liked to have also dived back to see Man of War race or Seabiscuit and be at one of those things so um, that would have just been remarkable but any race in Saratoga is great but I, I love all the tracks in America I've gotten the opportunity to go to, to Santa Anita and Keeneland and Gulfstream and Churchill and Pimlico and all those other great tracks so I'm, I'm immersed in it. Yeah I've been to Keeneland also that one's that's beautiful uh, but good choice American Pharaoh was a long time coming to get that triple crown. And I feel like that was just one where 
it was just a big collective finally that you know it, it, it was yeah, yeah exactly do you want to play this game as well Stephanie? sure i mean i was also going to say secretariat if okay. i could go back in time and see a race um obviously it's the 50th anniversary so everything we've been doing this year has been around secretariat um and we've heard some great stories we met people who have told us stories about being there at the race um but one that i've been to since we had our secretary exhibit we actually have been traveling this year with the traveling portion of the exhibit um, and going to different racetracks so we were actually at belmont when the first trainer to ever win the belmont stakes won the belmont stakes quick clarification stephanie meant to say the first female trainer to win the belmont stakes that would be jenna antonucci and now back to the program so that was kind of cool to see that happen so that was a recent one that just happened, but that was really cool to be at. Oh, that's a great one too. Yeah. You have two fun interactive attractions here at the museum. One is where you get an opportunity to call the race. And there are, I think, four choices that you can pick from. And then there's an actual uh, UB the Jockey horse racing simulator. Stephanie, you had the opportunity to watch me try out both of these exhibits. And I'm going to have you grade me uh, hopefully you'll be a little merciful and kind here uh, on my various skills. So let's start with calling the race. I picked the 1994 Traverse Stakes featuring Holy Bull, and they do provide you with a script, so you don't have to improvise, thank goodness, because otherwise it would be a total disaster. But you still have to have the right intonation and energy in your voice and keep up with the action. So before you critique me, let's have the audience listen to a clip. They're coming down to the final furlong. Mike Smith asking Holy Bull for everything he has. Concern is coming hard under Jerry Bailey. It's still Holy Bull desperately trying to hold. Concern a final threat, but it's Holy Bull as game as a racehorse could be coming down to the wire. Holy Bull wins! What a hero! Concern came to him at the end, and it was 15 lengths back to a Belmont Stakes winner. So, uh, how do you think I did? I mean, I think you did pretty well because compared to my first time using it, you know, being that we were here, we kind of got first dibs on trying out the interactives. I mean, being a race caller, I mean, it's I think it's so difficult to be able to watch the race, enjoy watching the race, but also make sure you're telling everyone that's what's happening at the same time. You did a very good job at getting all the words. I mean, when I did it, I was so excited. I feel like I was missing half the words that the, <laughs> the announcer was saying. <laughs> well, thank you. No, I, I appreciate it. I actually, I, I'm going to, without sounding like I'm trying to like boast or brag too much, I do feel like I did a pretty decent job on this and it might just be a little bit of like my news and journalism background of like being able to read off of a teleprompter a little bit and you're supposed to have this crescendo and build up of excitement so I tried to do that. When I was here the first time I tried a different race, I tried the American Pharaoh race. I was a little bit just slow on the uptake, like there were a couple times where I was reading along and then all of a sudden I realized, oh, I'm, I'm falling behind on this. Like, you almost have to speak like an auctioneer a little bit at times with, you know, and they're coming around the bend. Is it? Um, and then the other aspect was that there was the one horse in that race, I'm trying to remember what it was, I think the horse's name was like Mutahij, I think, or something like that. And and every time it came up on the screen, like I saw that name and I just, I could not get the name of that horse out of my mouth. Mutahij. Mut I exactly Mut what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, every, yeah. Right. Uh, every time, every time that horse came up and I tried to say it, it came out differently. Let's hear a clip of that now. Mutahij is third to the inside. And then it's Keenice on the outside of Mutahij. He's on top by three quarters of a length. Mutahij. I can't do it. 
I think it gives you pretty amazing perspective of, you know, what these callers have to do. I mean, you know, we, when we have this exhibit here, you have the benefit of this is a past race. You, you know who won it. The, the text is right in front of you. These guys who do these calls for a living, they have to do nine or 10 races a day. They have to know who the jocks are. They have to know who the trainers are of the horse. They have to know the colors. They have to be able to differentiate them as everything's changing. Uh, Tom Durkin, who's arguably the greatest race caller of all time is one of our museum trustees. And, you know, he will even say that, you know, you're not going to get everyone right. You know, you got to do the best you can and everything's happening in real time unfolding in the blink of a second. So yeah. it's, it's pretty remarkable the job that these guys have to do. It's not scripted for them. No, I, exactly. They, they don't get the benefit they actually, of having words. They have them. to have a thought process and they <laughs> have to know the pace and the scenarios and how things are coming. You know, when Tom did that call for Holy Bull there, you know, he's looking at a horse that went out to these incredible fractions and is he going to hold off this horse that's coming up at him? And it's just, you know, the inflection points and the drama that they're building as well with you. It's, it's pretty remarkable. A stuff. story is unfolding in front of yeah. you live as you're doing it. And you're trying to, through binoculars yeah. and through just all this frenetic energy that's going on, come up with this narrative and be able to come up with just all the right names. It's... It's hard. The I, biggest I, thing I, is getting it right, and yeah. then and then to make it exciting. And you know, Tom was uh, the best of the best. He, he had a theater background, which I think certainly helped him in <laughs> yeah. a lot of sense. So, uh, let's talk about the other one. Uh, I was a little bit caught off guard and surprised <laughs> when I did the the jockeying one because uh, I was thinking this was basically going to be uh, like a glorified. Uh, arcade simulator horse race. Then suddenly I'm getting like, you know, waivers thrown at me like here, you know, sign this. Uh, and, and then as it was explained to me, no, this is actually uh, a very unique simulator. The only one available to the public in the Western hemisphere that actual professional uh, jockeys will use to simulate the experience of, of riding on a horse. Somehow I didn't go flying off of this apparatus. Once again, I'm going to ask you to evaluate my performance. Uh, how did I do in the race? I think you did very well. I believe you came in first. I right? did come in first. Um, I wanted to let you, you say it. Yes, you came in first. And obviously it is a very difficult, you know, as you said, it's a very rare piece for the public to be able to come on and use. We do have jockeys during the summer, exercise riders during the summer that come over just to use it to get some more practice. Um, so it's very hard. I mean, there's some people that do the practice round and then say, never mind <laughs> on the actual race part. Um, a lot of people come in and tell us they're sore the next day. Um, but you did very well for the first time and you really, and we call our horse Ed and you did a very good job on Ed. <laughs> yeah. You call him Ed, which stands for something like educational something or whatever. But then on the screen itself, the horse also has an avatar named cardiac arrest. So that was another red flag that probably should have scared me off. Oh, you were going to say something? No, I was just going to add that, you know, a lot of the exercise riders and jockeys that have come over, they will tell you that this is the closest thing to riding a racehorse without actually doing it that you can do. Yeah. Um, there's really nothing, there's no way to actually simulate being on a horse other than being on a horse. But right. But this is the closest opportunity. I mean, we've had uh, Hall of Fame members come over and ride it, you know, guys who've ridden thousands and thousands of races and they say, you know, this is the sort of thing we train on. You know? yeah. So you're getting that experience here um, and it's, it's pretty remarkable. I think it's pretty safe to say that I'm not going to find myself on an actual racehorse anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So I feel like 
this is about as close as I'll ever get. Uh, I don't know. Like I was able to at least keep my balance because I know it does actually measure your balance and make sure that you're not, you know, leaning too much one way or another. I know that you can also, uh, you can increase or decrease the speed a little bit depending on your placement of your hands on the horse's neck. And I was a little bit afraid to like move my hands because I felt like at any point, like trying to go faster or trying to slow up, I was just going to completely throw off my balance. So I did try to like gradually go faster. Have you, either of you actually ever been on a horse? Nope. I have been on a horse. Um, Usually I stay walking or trotting. I don't go too fast usually. So have either of you done the simulator? I've done the simulator. I've not been on a real horse. How did you do it? Uh, my legs kind of felt jelloy after. Yes. You know. Swinging them over after I was done actually yeah. might have been the toughest part because yeah. I was actually, I just felt like at that point, like, yeah, I was like totally jelly legged. There are a lot of other really cool things at the museum that we didn't even talk about that, you know, everything from old uh, badges to, to get into various events to racing programs from events across the country. You also have a wall of silks. Uh, I, I'm always curious as to what goes into a horse owner's creative decision on what their colors and emblems are going to be. Uh, do you have a, a personal favorite in terms of the the silks that are up there? What would you want on your your own silk if uh, if you were to have one? Oh, wow, um, they're so <laughs> unique, and, and they they do have to be approved and registered. You know where you're racing them, and um, you know there's a lot of fun ones out there. Uh, you've seen them kind of get more creative over the years, but some of them are just, you know, simple classic colors or blocks or patterns that are, that are really nice. Um, I tend to like the classic ones. I mean, uh, you know, some of the, the ones that we have, the jockey statues out there, you know, the Whitney ones are this, it's called Eaton Blue, um, just a classic color. The fifth stable is, you know, a black with a red cap. Claiborne Farm is, you know, kind of a gold color, you know, so it's, some of them are very basic and they've been traditional for, uh, you know, multi-generations of families that sort of thing what i would personally want on mine oh boy i have no idea i've never never even thought about this um i I would want to kind of stand out though i want to have something kind of funky i I saw one uh when i was at keeneland recently it had a it had a smiley face on it the yellow smiley face Mm -hmm. with the two dots and the big nose it was it was just kind of unique so i think people are getting more and more creative with them um so it's just i would try to do something fun something along those lines to make people go oh wow check that one out i've seen some with that uh, you know, the Batman logo on it or something like that. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you wonder if they're getting into trademark infringement or anything. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, they, they do have to get approved and registered. So I'm hoping that those are in the clear. But there's some fun ones like that out there. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a favorite in terms of what's up on the wall? Oh, do, do you have an no. idea what you would want for your I own? I mean, I think one of my favorites is also Mary Lou Whitney's. Mm-hmm. Um, just the blue is a beautiful blue. And obviously, um, Secretariat also has a great blue and the checkered on there. For mine, I mean, that's a good question too. Favorite color is green, so I guess I would have green somewhere um, and probably try to stand out a little bit. I mean, recently I saw some very like neon colors and, you know, when they're racing, you're really seeing that one jockey in the neon color. So it really makes a difference really standing out. So it'd be interesting, you know, to kind of be able to create something and see what's approved and what's not from the jockey club. All right, before we go, I want to play one more game with you both. Let's do it. You have a room specifically dedicated to horse racing's 13 Triple Crown winners. So I want to rank some of the most famous aspects 
of the three legs of the Triple Crown, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness Stakes, and the Belmont Stakes. So I call this game Win Place Show. So I want you to tell me which of the three events gets win, which gets place, which gets show for each of the following things that I'm about to uh, ask you about. So for starters, you do have trophies from those three events. Uh, what's the best trophy from those three Triple Crown events? Oh, I know that answer kind of. You want to do yours first? Who well, you think oh, I'm only, I mean, it is hard. They're all very nice trophies, obviously. Um, but the Preakness Stakes trophy is very elaborate with its details. Um, lots of details, lots of little horses on it. Um, so just, you know, the elaborate portion of it, I think Preakness Trophy is definitely, you know, my favorite one. <laughs> okay. I'm going to agree with her on that. And, and some of these trophies have changed over the years too. Like the, uh, the Belmont Stakes Trophy, uh, specifically, uh, when we had the secretary traveling exhibit, the trophy that you see that they give out this, it's this big, massive cup now. And it's, it's very impressive when secretary won it, it, it looks like a dinner plate. You know, so these trophies have kind of changed over the years as well. But uh, the Woodlawn Vase, I, I mentioned before, it's just such a unique story that the trophy goes back to R.A. Alexander in Kentucky and, um, you know, how he established it for another race and everything. And um, just that that history, like I said, it comes out one day per year. So mm -hmm. it has an armed escort to the track and back. That's it. It never is out. It's it's on display at the museum, but I think that's probably the coolest of the three, in my opinion. So. All right, nice. Yeah, and just in definitely. keeping with the spirit of the game, it's oh. win, play, show. So who gets place, who gets show? Um, it's interesting because, as Brian said, some of them are a little bit different. I'm basing yeah. it off of, you know, the ones we have in the collection. Um, you know, the Belmont is a little bit more of a tray. Um, with It has beautiful inscription and images on it, but because – you know, the Derby is a gold trophy and might mm -hmm. come in second um, place and maybe Belmont last. <laughs> yeah, and again, these are all subjective, right? They're yes. all great in yes. their own way. So it's all subjective. <laughs> what about official drink from the three events? You have the, I'm not much of a drinker, so I haven't had any of these, but you have the mint julep for the Kentucky Derby. You have the uh, Black Eyed Susan for the Preakness and you have the Belmont Jewel for Belmont. I can tell you what's in them if you're not sure about some of these. I know what's in them. I, <laughs> I, I uh, personally, and this will probably not make a lot of people in Kentucky happy, I think mint juleps are disgusting. My personal <laughs> thing, I just don't like them. I have no interest in them. Um, Black Eyed Susans are, are pretty decent, um, you know, and I, I'd probably give the Belmont the ranking there. So I'd go Belmont, Preakness, and then Derby. I just don't like the mint juleps. Okay. I'm probably not going to be able to answer this only because I'm not a big drinker. I've only had a mint julep, so I okay. don't want to say which is better because I haven't tried the other two. <laughs> Fair enough. So Belmont takes that one. We're spreading the love. Do you want to actually rank the three events themselves in terms of your favorite, or do you want to avoid that minefield altogether? I feel like Brian does. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think you can rank them because they all have each year – they, they kind of change, you know, um, if it's a year when the triple crown is on the line, the Belmont takes on added significance and historical importance. The Derby is one of the world's spectacle events. You know, you get 160,000 people that show up there. Um, you know, and even the day before the Oaks is amazing. Um, and the, the, the Preakness, I think, kind of gets shortchanged a lot. You know, it's the middle, um, which I think is unfair because it's a spectacular event. And one of the great promoters of the Preakness, uh, Chick Lang, would always say, well, the reason why, you know, the Preakness is better is the Preakness has one thing the Kentucky Derby doesn't have. The Preakness has the Kentucky Derby winner. 
So you need that. So I, I think they all have their own rights. They all stand on their own merits. Um, but if there's a triple crown on the line, wow, that Belmont's spectacular and hard to beat. Uh, that's that's Definitely. a really good point. In that particular special circumstance, yeah. then that's the place that you want to be. Uh, all right. Well, listen, That's I really appreciate that. was fun. Thanks for playing along with me. Uh, we're just about out of time, but uh, is there anything, what's next for the hall? Just in terms of, we're talking today, it's November 2023. Uh, for those who are maybe thinking of coming next racing season, uh, you know, what's what's coming up? Well, we are open year round, so you know. If, yeah, you don't have to wait. If you want, if you want to come here and check us out now, some people actually prefer to avoid the crowds. Uh, we're, we're open Wednesday through Sunday uh, up until uh, late next spring when we go to seven days again. But uh, we got a lot of exciting exhibits. We're going to have a new Hall of Fame class every year. Um, you know, we haven't quite announced our exhibits yet, so I, I don't, yeah. I don't want to dive <laughs> into them. But each year we've got a lot of new and exciting things that come out. Uh, a new Hall of Fame class every year that we announce in April. So um, we're going to have events. Just keep uh, looking on our website for what what's going on, um, you know, and obviously uh, once spring comes around here, the horses start coming again uh, at, the, at the training track. The horses will be here as early as April. So, you know, if you want to come see some horses in Saratoga, um, they open it up on the weekend so you can see some of the training going on here before the season if you're in town. But uh, mid-July, we're going to be uh, we're going to be rocking and rolling again. But uh, we're, we're really looking forward to it. we got uh, some really uh, top names that potentially could be inducted into the Hall of Fame next year that are mm -hmm. newly eligible. So that's always fun. And the exhibits are going to be amazing. I, I won't spill the beans on them. Uh, we'll be announcing them, you know, probably by the end of the year, or early next year. But we got some amazing stuff that'll uh, uh, really impress a lot of people. All right, I look forward to that. Uh, we have officially made the turn and hit the final stretch here. So before we go, I am happy to inform you both that the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame has been officially inducted into the Hall Pass. Hall of Fame of Halls of Fame. Uh, congratulations. You both have, you know, 10 seconds uh, to give your little acceptance speech. Well, it's a great honor. We've been uh, we've been looking forward to this. Uh, we've been excited for your visit, and uh, it's a great honor, and we thank you for uh, including us in your hall pass. Yeah, great honor. Um, we're really excited this has finally happened, and just excited that you had a chance to come around and see everything that we have here. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, thanks for uh, to letting me try out that horse racing simulator. I survived. I lived. Yeah, it, was, it was really great. You, know, you really have a beautiful facility. Everybody should come and visit. Uh, and with that, we've crossed the finish line. That's going to wrap things up for this episode. Thanks to everyone for listening and watching. I'm Bradley Barth, your Hall Monitor, and I will see you all in the next edition of Hall Pass. <laughs>